Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, broadcasting whole, gray, gray, black, black, talk by manners, alternative activists, in our talk with Janice Graham. Why? Because while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, 
Words are for the means to meaning, and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is, there is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? You cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression, and where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have senses and systems of surveillance, coercing your conformity and How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you, and in your panic you turned to our common ground to be brave and speak with truth and courage about race. We promise you order. We promise you peace. We provide you sanctuary. And thank you so much for being with us, opening our 2013 season, our 28th year of broadcasting at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and of course, I'll be listening for you tonight here at Our Common Ground. Thank you so very much for being with us. Let me tell you, we've got to get busy tonight, but before we do, I do want to um, say hello to our new listeners and to our fans and our uh, loyal listeners, and thank you for being with us. Uh, again, for another season of Our Common Ground. Uh, I did miss you. I did. You know, there are times where there is so much going on that you have to regroup. You have to, uh, I've been doing this, this is my 28th year at Our Common Ground. And there are times where you have to, as as our elders would tell you, I guess I'm an elder now, but um, it is sage and very wise counsel that sometimes you have to sit still. You have to process what you see, test both what you see and what you are processing, and inform it uh, to talk about the events and the ideas and the characters that are in front of you. And so that's what I've been doing. And we started our our season uh, on the first Saturday of Black History Month. For those of you who do not know, uh, some of you may call it of African American History in America or Black History Month. It is an annual observance in the United States and in Canada and the United Kingdom for remembrance of important people and events in the history of the African diaspora. It is celebrated annually in the United States and Canada in February, and it is celebrated in October in the United Kingdom. It had its beginnings in 1926 in the United States when the historian Carter G. Woodson, and the Association for the Study of Negro and Life announced the second week of February to be Negro History Week. And this week was chosen because it marked the birthday of both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. 
Woodson created the holiday with the hope that it eventually would be um, eliminated when black history became fundamental in American history. Uh, It was met with enthusiastic response. It prompted the creation of black history clubs, an increase in interest among teachers and scholars, and interest from uh, progressive whites in the United States and throughout the world. Uh, It grew in popularity throughout the following decades with mayors across the United States endorsing it as a holiday. And in 1976, the federal government acknowledged the expansion of Black History Week to Black History Month uh, by the leaders of the Black United Students at Kent State University in February of 1929 to mark the tragedy that happened there. And the first celebration of Black History Month occurred at Kent State in February of 1970. Six years later, during the bicentennial, the expansion of Negro History Week to Black History Month was recognized by the United States government. Gerald Ford, who was the president at the time, spoke in regard to this, urging Americans to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. Um, In 1995, after a motion by politician Jean-Augustine, Canada's House of Commons officially recognized February as Black History Month. There have been some criticisms of this holiday. Black History Month has sparked um, the annual debate about the continued usefulness and fairness of a designated month dedicated to the history of one race. Uh, Indeed, many of uh, the uh, white supremacist, evangelical right, crazy people in this country hold concerns about black history being delegated Um, And then there are those in our community who also have concerns about a single month and the hero worship of some of the historical figures often recognized. Morgan Freeman uh, is a critic, for instance, the actor of Black History Month. Um, And we at Our Common Ground support the notion that Black History Month is a time for us to assemble our focus around and discovering new ideas, new accomplishments, and to think of the breadth of the history of African-American people in this country. And we do recommend and encourage you to especially create black history materials, opportunities for learning, um, volunteer at your child's school to provide black history uh, materials to read more, to understand more about the history of our people all year, but to seize this as an opportunity. And so I hope that we certainly salute every African-American, every black person in this country, every event we remember Uh, during this month, and we hope that you will explore your history, share it with your family and children especially, and the children in your communities. Uh, 
so that we can increase the empowerment of our understanding of the broken places and the places where we are strong. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and we thank you so very much for joining us tonight. Tonight our guest, the political, cultural, social critic, and essayist, Playfell Benjamin. He is not new to Our Common Ground, and we are pleased to have him with us. We're going to be talking specifically about his new book that is coming up, Witnessing the Motion of History. He is a producer of commentaries on the Times, for which I read daily, which he writes and delivers on WBAI Radio in New York City. He is a producer with the Midnight Ravers, a long-running show exploring the world of art and politics, which has won several radio awards for excellence in programming. He is an award-winning journalist who has been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in two different categories, explanatory journalism uh, for the Village Voice in 1988 and distinguished commentary for New York for his work at the New York Daily News in 1995. As part of the production team for the Midnight Ravers, Playfell Benjamin won a 2011 award for excellence in radio programming given for the Curtis Mayfield Special. In addition to major political current events, he has extensively written about the differences in political approach within the black community on issues related to President Obama and his presidency, administration policies, and achievements. He has been an Our Common Voice ground voice since 1989, and we welcome his voice back to our microphones. Recently, he has been focusing on issues related to the Obama uh, 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 administration achievements. The inter-community discourse on President Obama and class struggle in America and his provocative well-informed commentary at Commentaries on the Times is hard-hitting and sure to invite serious consideration of his positions and directions. As a matter of fact, Playfell Benjamin has written 256 essays on the Obama administration, which have been published. He has done serious examination on American foreign policy in regard to APEC, AFRICON. Recently, he wrote uh, a very um, extensive analysis of black unemployment in, um, in commentaries on the Times last week, as a matter of fact. And we are just so pleased to have Playfell Benjamin join us once again. Chili P, how, how you, you doing? <laughs> how, you, how you doing? I'm Listen, I'm so let me begin by you. saying something about uh, uh, um, Dr. Carter G. Whitson in this holiday. Uh, the most important thing about um, why Dr. Whitson uh, founded uh, Black History, uh, Negro History Week, as it was originally known, uh, he not only founded Negro History Week, but he founded uh, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. 
and he also founded uh, a journal, um, and, and the Journal of Negro History and the Negro History Bulletin, which was a popularizing, uh, uh, um, a popularizing uh, publication. That is, when I say popularizing, I mean people who joined the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History would get these bulletins, and they were written, you know, for mass consumption. The Journal of Negro History is the most distinguished journal in the field right now, uh, and and that was from the outset a scholarly journal. It is, you know, for mm-hmm. publication of original research by serious scholars. But the reason why uh, Carter G. Woodson um, <clears throat> organized the uh, study for the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History was because of the the racist mania in this country and the and the and the the, the uh, prevalence of lynching that is you know the ceremonial murder the ritual murder you know of black men and women uh, in public uh, exhibitions which were really designed to terrorize the black community into uh, submission you know and it took place all over this country but mostly the deep south but um this was at a time in the early 20th century when you could see uh european imperialism uh, moving into the third world and see people peoples being wiped out like in Australia, like in Tasmania, you know, like the uh, the, the, the Native Americans, you know, who the, the Indian Wars, you know, in the late 19th century, and so Woodson uh, became uh, concerned about the fact that if people can present you, if you can be presented uh, as a people without a history, as a people without a culture that's of value, uh, then you can be considered. Uh, dispensable and exterminated. He was afraid that black Americans could meet the same fate as the Tasmanians, you know, or the Australian Aborigines or the Native Americans. Uh, And so part of that, you know, was to establish, you know, who we were, you know, establish our humanity, establish our tradition to, you know, to to, to make it clear, you know, uh, that we were people with a history and traditions and we were not an insignificant Factor in the world. That's that was the that was the main motivating force behind him uh, organizing the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, and of course, the first scholarly history written by uh, a, a black historian, a historian period on Afro Americans, was written by W. B. Du Bois, the suppression of the African slave trade, which was his Harvard Ph.D. thesis, you know, in the 1890s, and it was so good they published it. But that was the first scientific study you know, of Afro-American history was done. Now, Woodson came along and also got a Ph.D. from Harvard because modern documentary scientific history was actually pretty much created at Harvard in this period uh, by people that Du Bois was studying with. Albert Bushnell Hart, for instance, you know, was a major figure in this. Um, And so Woodson came along behind Du Bois and also took a Ph.D. In fact is, the people who wrote the, the, the most important of our first histories, uh, W.B. Du Bois, uh, Carter G. Woodson, uh, Dr. Rayford Logan, uh, Dr. John Hope Franklin, all of them were PhDs from Harvard. Uh, so Harvard played a great role in training the historians who put together, you know, the, the basis, the, the beginnings of Afro-American historiography. The difference between Woodson and Du Bois was that Du Bois became an activist. You know, and and wanted to try and change things through political activism, mm-hmm. and Whitson remained completely committed to writing our history, and to training historians. And so he gathered around him a whole group of talented young people, including John Hope Franklin. The best piece to understand 
Crowder G. Whitson's position in the development of an Afro-American historiography, that is in terms of a written Afro-American historical literature, is to read the essay by John Hope Franklin, Carter G. Whitson in American Historiography. Uh, when you were talking about my various uh, lights, I also was a history professor. In fact, well, I am a That was post- one of the reasons we invited you to start off our season, because <laughs> yeah, well, I know that you can inform these issues through your thorough understanding and study of our history. Well, that's one of the things that's missing in a lot of journalism. It's also uh, one of the things that's missing in a lot of political commentary. Um, The the book uh, that I have uh, done uh, here, uh, Witnessing um, the Motion of History, Notes on the Obama Era, um, I am putting the finishing touches on it, and it will appear first as an e-book, and then, you know, later as a... a, uh, Print hard print version, um, but what it is, it is a collection of the best of these 250 something essays I have written on Barack, and and they're selected in chronological order, so you can see how my views of him formed, you know, and how my ongoing commentaries on uh, various aspects of his administration, foreign and domestic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, the, the last piece that you mentioned, uh, the piece that, uh, that you mentioned a moment ago about employment, that's going to be uh, in the book, uh, and it's and, and it's it's near it's near the end, you know, the book when I'm looking at what some of the problems uh, President Obama, you know, is going to have um, in the second administration. Uh, but in but but in the first, this book will also include a look at Barack Obama's critics on the left, black and white. You know, and 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 the propagandists, you know, who attack him on the right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the give things, us a summary, uh, Playfell, of what you believe uh, that this administration, uh, where we are, and how far we have come. Uh, one of the things I have been terribly concerned about is the environment in which that has been created in response to his election in 2008. What do you think? Well, here's the thing you have to understand, all right? Despite the fact that there are some blacks in the Republican Party, you know, and who are quite visible. You mean all five of them? Yeah, the, 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 you know, you see people like this guy, Tim Scott, you know, who uh, was just um, nominated by the governor of uh, South Carolina, Nikki Haley, uh, to fill the spot of this, you know, uh, Southern redneck senator who uh, dement, Jim Dement, who left to go to, I think, the Heritage Foundation, one of these right-wing think tanks. Uh, the, the fact is, is that you know, um, despite the fact that you see, you saw all of the love they gave Herman Cain, or the fact that she appointed this guy Tim Scott to fill Dement's seat. I wrote a piece on it called "Sambo Goes to the Senate." You know what I'm saying? And 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 uh, everybody should read it. Uh, because when I talk about Sambo, I'm talking about, you know, I'm referring to the Elkins thesis about uh, the Sambo personality. Because this guy here, you know, if you look at his voting record, and I have his voting record attached to the end of uh, of the essay, you will see that this guy is, is, is atrocious. You know I mean? He's way out there to the right. So the, 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 the race issue has changed in America radically, you know, uh, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And in, in my lifetime as an adult, I've witnessed it change radically to the point where you have racists, 
who want to win. So, well, first of all, in the Republican Party, you have two groups of people. You have uh, the Republican Party is a strange uh, coalition. It is a coalition between rich businessmen and poor, dumb rednecks. Now, here is how that happened. The Republican Party traditionally is a party of the plutocrats, of the rich upper class. However, it, they used to have, the Republican Party used to have a very liberal wing to it, very liberal side. I mean, if you look at somebody like, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, for instance, uh, General Dwight Eisenhower, and look at his views uh, and look at this Republican Party now, uh, you wouldn't even recognize them, but they've always been a pro-business, uh, a, a, a pro-rich party. The problem was is that uh, you can't um, create a majority in this country if that's your basic constituency because these people are a minority. That's the reason why the Democrats controlled the Congress for 44 years after the great crash of, of 1929, after the Republicans lost uh, during the uh, Great Depression. For 44 years, the Democrats controlled uh, the uh, party, uh, the, co the House of Congress, the Congress. What happened was is that as black people uh, and organized labor became more powerful in the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party was pushed towards supporting civil rights. And hence it was under a Democratic president and a Democratic-controlled Congress that we got all the landmark civil rights legislation, the Omnibus Civil Rights Bill of 1964. And the bill that really transformed the South was the Voting Rights Act of 1965, along with the Economic Opportunity Act also of 1965, which became known as the War on Poverty which put many millions of dollars out here to really attempt to eradicate poverty uh, in America. The Republicans, uh, rich, you know, reactionary, uh, plutocratic Republican Party was outraged about this. And so they had to come up with a strategy. How are we going to take away the majority from the Democrats? And what they did, they decided to come up with a strategy that would appeal to all of these angry racist whites in the South who was outraged about the successes that black people had achieved under the Civil Rights Movement. In fact, when President Lyndon Johnson signed the Omnibus Civil Rights Bill in 1964, he said, we've given the Republican Party, well, this is when he signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, he gave the pen to Bill Moyers, the distinguished journalist who was then his press secretary, and said to him that, Bill, we have given the South to the Republicans for a generation. But it's turned out to be much more than a generation. It's turned out to be a couple of generations or more. But the point is is that the Republicans, in order to create a majority, appeal to these racist, uh, dumb rednecks in the South. And that's, these are the people who form the basis of the Tea Party, and they have lost control of them now. You know, but 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 these people, they fed them a diet of racism. However, the re business class of Republicans, they don't really care about race. I'm talking about the people who were represented by George Bush Senior, George Bush Junior. George Bush was not a racist. You know, racists don't appoint people, uh, black people, to jobs like um, national security advisor. That ain't no joke. You know, national security advisor is a very very serious position. You know, or this is the person who tells the president what's going on in the world. First, the first person he talks to in the morning after his wife, the, the last person he talks to at night before his wife. You know, uh, and 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 basically his view of the world is shaped by uh, the the national security advisor. They appointed Colin Powell to that. They appointed Kyle, Colin Powell chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That ain't no joke. That's in charge of the whole United States of combined armed forces. They they appointed him Secretary of State. These are, this is the business 
the class of the Republicans and the Republican intelligentsia. They're not racist in that way. They're concerned about power and money, you know, and race is a secondary consideration. It's the oh, poor I, I'm redneck. glad you said that. Because it's, the, it's, it's the poor rednecks in the base, you see, the ones you see in the Tea Party and what have you, the ones that, the, the poor crackers in the South who are Republicans, which is crazy because the Republican Party, they are the same people, they are the contemporary expression of the poor whites who supported the system of slavery. You know, only about 12 or 13% of whites in the South owned slaves, any significant number of slaves doing slavery. Most whites didn't. They supported it because they were told that they were a member of a superior racial caste system. And so they put, supported a system that cut their own throat because how can you ever bargain for a fair wage if you are competing in a labor market with slaves, with people who don't get paid at all? So it was totally against their interest to support the slaveocracy, but because of, of the illusion of racial superiority, they did. And it's the same thing with the Republicans. Today, no working-class white person in their right mind should be supporting Republicans. How could you support a man like Mitt Romney, who told you he's going to fire you if he get in, in, in office, who made a, a career of shipping American jobs overseas? Uh, how could working-class white people support them because of their racism? You know, because of, of – of, so the, the Republican Party is its, – its basic strategy, its fundamental strategy was to play to race, the Southern strategy. Now, there's a book written on this uh, that explains this in detail, a great scholarly book written by a great scholar, uh, Dr. Dan T. Carter. The title of the book is um, The Politics of Rage. And this is a man who is a Bancroft Prize-winning Southern historian. He's one of the best. And he gives a detailed, documented, detailed account of how the Republicans worked this Southern strategy to win over the South. So now the Republican Party is stuck with a, a party where you have uh, the, the business elite, like the Wall Street guys. You think these Wall Street guys want to hear them talking about uh, uh, taking the economy over the cliff? I mean, you had all these Tea Party people talking about, let's go over the cliff, we can survive it. Listen, the Wall Street guys called Bain and them in there and told them, are you out of your mind? You understand what I'm saying? You can't lie. And so they, they stopped it. They stopped them from doing it, even though they're still fooling around with it. And Boehner is not really in control of these people. You know, they might actually end up wrecking the economy after all. But that's what has happened. The Republicans have created a monster. They've got, you know, they've got the appeal of these people, and these are the people who listen to Rush Limbaugh. These are the people who listen to Glenn Beck. These are the people who get all of their news from the Fox Radio Network. Uh, so they're in a they're 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 in a they're in a a a a, a, a terrible situation uh, where their party is engaged in an internal war and where they are decreasing. Now, when people say people who are supposed to be intelligent people, uh, like Glenn Ford of the Black Agenda Report, uh, when he said before the election, that it didn't matter whether black people vote or not, that there's no difference between the Democratic or in the Republican Party. Well, in my book, I begin uh, with uh, an essay that addresses exactly that question, because it was written the first time I ever saw Barack Obama. The, the first time I saw Barack Obama was when, uh, was when he... Um, uh, spoke at the Democratic National Convention, and um, uh, which one? I had never. I, I just briefly heard of him. You know, I didn't really know who he was. You uh, mean, two thousand and eight? No, two thousand and four. Okay. When okay. when 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 when, mm -hmm. when Kerry? 
Yeah, when, mm-hmm. yeah, in Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, when, as a matter of fact, the piece I wrote is called Hope is Reborn in Beantown. Now, it's, it's funny because I just happened to be, you know, watching the convention, and it was my feeling, and I continue to feel that the reason that Kerry lost this debate, I mean, lost the presidency, is because he was basically a bore. Uh, and people don't understand the, the power of oratory, you know, uh, in uh, in, in politics, you know, and in public office. Barack Obama, you know, has managed to get where he is because he's such a great speaker and has something to say. He's very, very smart. He has something to say. Uh, but um, but Kerry was, was a bit of a boy. You know, he's, he came across as kind of like an upper class, you know, kind of, you know, and I, I used to watch him and I used to say, this guy needs to loosen up. He needs to loosen up, you know. But anyway, Watching me, so I so I so I knew he was gonna pretty much gonna go down. I I, I figured he wasn't gonna win. So I'm looking at this at the convention, and 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 this is what happened. Now, as I say, address these questions because at the time Cornell West was running around. Uh, 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 he he had already caused um, the Democrats help to help the Democrats, not caused by himself, but played his part in the Democrats losing uh, the first time. You know, uh, uh, to to uh, George Bush, uh, be, because he um, uh, went around and campaigned for Ralph Nader, uh, and told people, you know, not to vote for Gore and the Democrats, and there's no difference between them and Republicans. So this time, when I wrote this piece, I began by talking about addressing that question, and that, and this, and this, what I'm saying here still holds true, all right? And this is the first uh, essay in the book. It's called "Hope Is Reborn in Beantown." Some Reflections on the Democratic Convention, circa 2004. In some circles on the left, it has become fashionable to to the point of conventional wisdom to argue that there's no difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. Well, that's true if your goal is to establish a revolutionary socialist or communist society in the United States, which by any objective analysis proves to be dangerous folly. Therefore, cannot be the business of serious citizens hoping to fashion a better society. In spite of setbacks, trials, and troubles, this goal remains my dream. And unlike most of my comrades on the left, I no longer believe this can be accomplished by a revolutionary armed vanguard party, like the Black Panthers, for instance, or any kind of third party, for that matter. Hence, whatever progressive change that will come to America the vehicle will be one of the two major political parties. By that measure, the Democrats are qualitatively different from the Republicans. If your objective is universal health care for every citizen, increased availability of affordable housing, tax policies that encourage manufacturing jobs at home instead of tax policies that encourage multinational corporations to take their jobs to cheaper labor markets where workers have no rights, support for affirmative action policies that take into account the living legacy of America's history of slavery and apartheid, which consumed three-quarters of the nation's history, a reduction of the war hysteria, a sincere attempt to find an honorable way out of a dishonorable war, and a genuine desire to promote racial harmony. The Democrats can be counted on to scrap the new class of exotic atomic weapons that the Bushmen are designing with an announced first-strike strategy in mind, or to re-sign the International Criminal Court Treaty and the treaty to protect the atmosphere and move in concert with the rest of the world through wise diplomacy instead of trying to bully everybody based on some spurious theology of American exceptionalism and a unipolar world domination through the promiscuous use of military force. Uh, 
The Democrats will immediately scrap the Star Wars anti-ballistic missile system, which aside from squandering untold billions of much-needed dollars, would also have, have abrogated the, the ABM Treaty, the most important diplomatic achievement in the age of nuclear weapons. And next to avoiding nuclear war, the most important issue for African Americans and other protected classes, as well as organized labor, is that the next president will probably appoint two justices to the Supreme Court, thus setting our future back to the 1950s. Yes, the Democrats are far better than the Republicans on all of these critical life and death issues. Because the Democrats are so much better than the Republicans on these fundamental issues, they offer hope to millions of struggling Americans whose jobs have disappeared. And thousands of military families have a reason to hope their loved ones won't be sent off to bogus wars of choice, something they could not hope for, however, if Senator Lieberman, a true hawk, were the party's standard bearer. But the party rejected his bid for the Oval Office and selected two men who would play to seek peace with other nations and respect their legitimate interests. While these values were reiterated by speaker after speaker in a plethora of Florida oratory, they were best expressed in the utterances and example of four men, one from the Midwest, one from the South, one from New England, and one from the Big Apple. Two were African-American and two were Euro-American. Of the four men, the tall, skinny, big-eared guy from Chi-Town with the funny-sounding name has the most unique tale to tell. Now, this is the first time I ever saw him, right? A scrappy community organizer with a Harvard Law degree. Barack Obama is the latest incarnation of the American dream. While his celebrity has soared to rock star proportions as his political fortunes have risen, even to the point where serious people among the white establishment are not only assuming that he will win the Senate race in Illinois, but become the first African-American president. This was in 2004 I wrote this. Obama takes it all with a grain of salt. The day after the speech, when he was mobbed everywhere he went, he said with a bemused smile, just yesterday people were calling me Alabama or your mama. And elsewhere, he said that perhaps he was just, quote, the flavor of the month. Yet most seasoned political observers and party pros think he is much more than that. They are singing, the Rockies will tumble, the Brawlton may crumble, but our boy is here to stay. After meeting and talking with Obama, the savvy New York City politician and shock, Mark Green, called him, quote, the Alex Rodriguez of politics, comparing him to the Yankee slugger, who was the biggest star in baseball. And he saw him as the future leader of the Democratic Party. Several things account for Obama's charisma. He was born to a Kenyan father, who also studied at Harvard, and a white mother from Kansas, and was raised by his white grandparents in Hawaii. Hence, it is widely believed that this interracial, multicultural background has invested Obama with the insight to deal with all types of people and transcend race, ethnicity, and class. Let his me, speech. Yeah, let me, I'm just, just about. I'm just about you. through. I'm stop just about right through. There. I'm just about through. Okay. His speech, which was given a rousing ovation by the crowd, embodied all of these themes, and he looked like he might just be everything the political pros think he is. Okay, so that's the section from that piece. I don't think that there are any people who really understand how the political machine works in globally. 
and that would believe that Barack Obama is not a politician's politician. But let he's me not ask a what? I'm sorry. He's not a what? Because somebody's calling poli- me, so you we're getting this buzz here. A politician's politician. Yeah. That he is. That he understands the system in which he has to maneuver. But one of the things that I have been curious about, and and as I indicated, I read your work uh, very consistently, is how how little he has been able to get people to understand exactly what his strategies have been at the risk of a growing criticism out of the African-American community in this country that was enamored. I was at the night before he made that speech at the uh, DNC, I was at a uh, reception, and he was there, and it's the first the only time that I have ever had an opportunity to talk to him or see him in person and blah, blah, blah. But um, who would have known in that room that night that this very bright, uh, seeming visionary man would be moving forward in the direction that he was moving? But I want to know from you your analysis of how it went so bad for him and why all of his, especially black pundit uh, critics, are not understanding the infrastructure under which he has had to make the kinds of decisions that he's made. For instance, I give you some things, you know, my whole laundry list. You know my laundry list. Uh, I don't know your laundry list. You have, to, you have to state your line. I don't know what they are, you know, but I, let me just say this just before you go any further. Um, there's only a handful of malcontents in the black community who don't who don't support Obama. Obama got 95% of black people voted for Barack Obama. None of them voted for Mitt Romney. So the people who run in their mouth, you know, this is just a click, you know, of of, of mal- intellectual malcontents that I addressed in this last piece that I wrote that I will read from, you know, uh, momentarily. Uh, but so let's get that straight. Uh, the majority of black people are solidly behind Barack Obama. All right, and I went to. Uh, uh, to a, a um, to a election party here at uh, State Senator uh, what you would call this office. It was in a ballroom up here in Harlem, and it was packed. Okay, and there was a live band, and this is the folks, you know, from all over, and they had a big screen up, and we watched that election, and and when the minute that it, 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 you know, when Barack Obama went over the top, the band struck up, ain't no stopping us now, and people parted till the sun came up. So, and that happened all over the country. I have a former student of mine who was a professor out in Michigan, uh, who was one of the, when I first met him, he had just come out of Orangeburg, the Orangeburg Massacre at Orangeburg, South Carolina, where they shot up and killed those students, and he had to leave the state, and he came to UMass as a student. When I first came as a professor, we came there about the same time. He went on to get a Ph.D. uh, in literature. He got so excited at the party, he had a heart attack and died. Yes, I'm saying so. These guys, these malcontents, they are a handful, you know, of people. Uh-huh. They're not. They don't represent the black community at all. Okay? You have all right. been very, very critical of uh, Dr. Cornell West, and you know, uh, Cornell West is a friend, and he's also a friend of yours. And one he of the was. things that I, I, I don't think he considers me a friend now. Now, yes, yeah. that he was a friend. Of mine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But one of the things that I so admired 
about your very honest, upfront criticism of Dr. West was that you recognized his utility and his brilliance as a resource to our community and felt that it was at risk for us. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, uh, I've written uh, nine essays on uh, West, uh, which can be read uh, on commentaries on the Times. Just go on the blog and you'll see a section that says on Dr. Cornell West, and there are nine essays up there. All right, the first uh, essay I wrote, uh, well, the first time I started writing, I started writing about Cornell West back doing uh, when he was um, uh, advising people in 2000 uh, not to uh, vote for the Democrats. I wrote a piece called On Choosing the Lesser Evil. That piece is on here, too. Uh, and, and in this piece, I warned, you know, that what he was doing uh, could help elect the Republicans. I went into it in detail. I warned about it, you know, and it kept on, and it did help elect it. If, if, listen, if if the, all the people who voted for Ralph Nader in the state of Florida had voted for Gore, and they would have if Nader hadn't been in the election, there wouldn't have even an election between him and Bush wouldn't even wouldn't even been close. But because they convinced, you know, uh, all these people uh, to, 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 to not vote for the Democrats, Bush won. Now, look at the consequences of what happened when Bush when when you read this piece, you know, uh, 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 on 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 the uh, 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 on choosing the lesser evil, I spelled out what was going to happen if Bush got elected, and it turned out even worse than I thought. You understand? And and but everything I said happened was going to happen, happen, and worse. Now, so so I I was particularly annoyed that Cornell West never stepped forward. Look at all the disasters that flowed from the election of Bush. People got killed. A lot of people got killed because of, of, of Bush's election. This guy started a war that was not necessary at all, a war of choice with a country that had nothing at all to do with 9-11, that had done nothing to us. And I've written about this extensively. You know, there's a piece, you know, called uh, uh, How the Iraq War Was Hatched in the Think Tank. And it shows the policy people who came, who Cheney brought into the Bush administration out of the, that think tank, the Project for New American Century, and they started this war. Plus the fact they wrecked the economy. Uh, when when George Bush came into office, he inherited a big surplus, you know, from 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 uh, from uh, from the well-managed Clinton economy, and he squandered it all and wrecked the economy. So and people died as a result of that. I have a sister who lost five hundred thousand dollars as a result of the crash. You know, uh, do, do you do you realize that Black Americans nationwide? lost 67% of all the wealth we have gained since the end of slavery as a result of this Bush crash, okay? And Cornell West played a role in getting this clown elected, okay? that We're confronted here now with this insidious uh, uh, Citizens United uh, decision by the Supreme Court, by justices that Bush appointed to the court, Citizens United, which, which, is, which is threatening to turn our democ participatory democracy into a plutocracy, you know, ruled by the rich, by removing any restrictions on the, we the wealthy and corporations spending money. It is a real testament, testament to the genius of Barack Obama as a politician and his organization that they managed to overcome all this money that these right-wing reactionaries put out here to try and defeat him. Black people, Playfell, are saying that they haven't overcome. Listen, what do you mean they haven't overcome? Listen, who do they think Barack Obama is? Moses, listen, we have, a, we have a government here which the way it is set up by the Constitution 
We have a government that has a threefold division of power, okay? We have the executive, we have the legislative, and we have the judiciary. Most black people who talk, even people like Cornel West, who are highly educated, don't seem to understand the difference between this. They act as if they think Barack Obama is a king. I wrote in one of the early essays that I could read to you where I said in the beginning, he will not be a king. If he's elected, he will not be an emperor. He will be a president, which means he has got to negotiate with the Congress. And he has, look at what has happened with the, with the federal court ruling here just last week. The Republicans have been blocking his appointments, critical appointments, you know, and they've just been blocking them to try to keep him from governing. This is obstruction of his right to govern. So what he did was make some recess appointments. That is appointments when the Congress is on recess and he could get these appointments in there and don't have to get congressional approval. The federal court, all Republican appointees, just ruled that that's unconstitutional in a case involving the Labor Relations Board. Now, this is a case that's dealing directly with the rights of working people, the rights to organize or what have you. The court said that it was unconstitutional in their 300 decisions, pro-labor decisions, that this labor board has made that could be voided as a result of this decision. Now, they're going to go to the Supreme Court and see what the Supreme Court says. But this is a direct result of having the Republicans stack uh, the, 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 the courts uh, with the, all these right-wing people, and so they actually are able to stop him from covering. Now, just look at, for instance, the veto, the way that they use the, the not the, the filibuster, you know, which serves as a veto in the Senate. It usually used to be when you have a filibuster, uh, the whole while you're filibustering, you have to be on the floor making a speech. You've got to make a speech, and you've got to make a speech. Mm -hmm. As long as you want to filibuster, you've got to make a speech, which means that it could come to an end, you know, sometimes. But now... They have it where they've created a situation where you have to have a supermajority of 60, and the senators don't have to get on the floor and argue. They can just say, I'm going to object to it, and right away everything is brought to a standstill. This is what Barack Obama has been confronted with. Do you understand that when Lyndon Johnson was, 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 uh, was president, for, for I think before Johnson became president, I'm trying to think of how many times uh, 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 they they have uh, they they used this filibuster was used, but it has been used ten times or more as much uh, for Barack Obama than it has been ever used for anybody else. You know, so the the the, the real problem, and in spite of that, he's managed to get landmark landmark legislation through. You know, and I, you know, and I and I and I can name them, but but landmark, for instance. But but even with even with all of these 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 obstacles, he's managed to get the health the universal health care bill through. He managed to get the stimulus. Um, you you have to pay attention. People have to read the thing that that I'm most um, uh, annoyed with, uh, with 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 Westenham, And these guys are not up on the research. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're talking about, and they're not doing any serious research. This well, is what I talk about. Well, they're not policy wonks either. Yeah, but they should shut up then. You know what I'm saying? Cornell West is a theologian. What we need him to do, what he should be doing, is out fighting uh, the, 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 these right-wing, uh, 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 the, the Christian right, you know, who wrap themselves in the Bible. Um, Attacking I, I just want to, this is the first piece I wrote about Cornell West. I want to read something from it and his, 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 his criticism of Barack Obama. All right? And when I started out, 
in this first piece, I was still quite respectful of him because at the time, you know, I considered him, you know, a friend and an ally. Since then, the things he's done, uh, if you read my pieces, they grow more and more caustic. But this is the beginning. And I'm just laying out what the title of this piece is on moral preachment, on moral preachment versus political realities. And here I'm just trying to talk about um, what politics is and the, and, and the difference between politics and, 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 you know, and moral suasion. Right? So it says, a response to Dr. Cornell West, and this is a comment he made. I said, anybody who is looking for evidence that history repeats itself need only read my critiques of Dr. Cornell West since the first Bush election when he thought it was wise to support Ralph Nader over Al Gore. Well, we all know how that worked out. But let me declare from the outset that I consider Cornell West to be one of the most learned and humane citizens to ever call himself an American, and I agree with him on 90% of the time. This is the first piece I wrote. My opinion on that has changed considerably. As a fellow Democrat, a Democratic Socialist, we share the same basic vision and hopes for America. But from, the time that, but, but from time to time, I'm forced to part company and criticize his views on a particular question. In the past, we disagreed on his assessment of the character of Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois and the viability of Ralph Nader's bid for, for, for the presidency and its implications for African-American political strategy. And now, I passionately disagree with his assessment of President Obama's political strategy and policies. It is this question that I wish to address in the present commentary. The difference between me and the learned Dr. West derives from our ways of looking at sociopolitical reality. Dr. West is a philosopher and theologian, which means he's given to grand mystical musings and philosophical speculations. Whereas I rely on the evidentiary rules of the sober historian dispassionately assessing provable facts, and my strategy is determined by the cold realities of the political arena, a heartless place, red of tooth and claw, where grand speculators, dreamers, preachers, and wishful thinkers are devoured like Christians facing the lions in the Circus Maximum, Maximus of ancient Rome. In other words, Dr. West is a moral scold whose actions are motivated by what he believes is right, no matter what. And I am a political animal who is looking for the best deal I can get because politics is the art of the possible. It is all well and good to speak in utopian language about everybody loving each other, if your work is in the church, temple, mosque, or synagogue. There it is sufficient to speak in vague moral platitudes. Don't misunderstand me. I, too, am interested in brotherly love and Christian charity. But in politics, you have to, uh, have, have clearly defined, you have to have clearly defined earthly goals and a means of achieving your ends. Alas, in America today, prayer and high-minded ideals won't deliver the bacon. This means one must find a way to successfully put together coalitions in Congress to get the votes you need for your agenda enacted into law. But how this do we, let me ask you, uh, uh, Playfell, how do we begin to get our community to understand exactly what you just laid out, that... A political, polit being political is a science, and it means that you have to 
study the political system under which you work. And the political system, we rail on one side about the political system and the Republicans and the GOP and the Koch brothers and all those people who, and then we rail about the things that we should know that's not going to work, that's not going to happen. Well, let's put it this way. We've got to bring some solutions. At the founding of the country, there was a debate among the founding fathers about whether or not they should institute a system of free and compulsory education. Because, you know, where people would have to go to school or go to jail. Of course, that became our truancy system, our public school system. But the question, the, 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 among the, the framers of the Constitution, the founding fathers of this country, these were literate Englishmen. So you didn't have to convince them about the virtues of reading. These were the heirs of Shakespeare and Chaucer. You know what I mean? But the question was, to what end should this public expenditure be made? Why should people uh, be forced to learn to read and to cipher? Uh, most of them said that people should learn to read because, you know, then they could read the Bible and know what God intended for us to do. Thomas Jefferson, who was skeptical about all that, said people must learn to read Citizens must learn to read because a democracy cannot function with an ignorant electorate. An ignorant electorate will elect and return the worst people to power. Now, in the election of 2010, barely uh, 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 a couple of years uh, after um, the Republicans had wrecked the economy, wrecked it, I mean, when Barack Obama came into office, people forget this. The radio station, WBI, where I do my commentaries, and I was going down there every day. And this is on Wall Street, right down the street from the, 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 the New York Stock Exchange. I was on Wall Street when things were falling apart. As a matter of fact, I ran outside with my camera and took pictures, and I have a piece on, in this book and, on, and it's on the blog called Waiting for the Axe to Fall. You know, And I have pictures of the Wall Street bankers standing in the street watching that ticker tape go down and looking like they all wanted to blow their brains out. Right? This thing was literally falling apart. The day that Bush came down there and announced the top, I was down there. And, 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 and people forget uh, how close we came to the whole world financial system collapsing. That is what Barack Obama inherited when he came into office. And you got people quibbling about the fact that he had Geithner, you know, uh, as put Geithner in, 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 in a, what you would call it from Harvard. In there. He needed people who understood what a derivative is. He needed people who understood what a, swap, a credit default swap was. Most people had never heard of these things, you know. And his job, first of all, was to keep the economy from collapsing. Now, you have Cornell West. Uh, running around talking about he saved the banks. I mean, this, this is this is this is like I mean, nobody but an ignoramus or a charlatan would make an argument like this. And I wrote an open letter to him that went it went viral, you know, and it's online. Open letter to Cornell West, and I asked him point blank about this question. And I've never heard a word from him, but if ever I get him on a stage, if he ever get nerved to get on stage with me. This is one of the questions I want to put to him: Do you really believe that Black Americans would have been better off? If the banks had failed, do he does he believe that? If he believes that, he's a damn fool and has no business talking about political economics at all. If he believes that, okay. And if he doesn't believe that, 
Why is he going around saying this? He's either a fool or a charlatan. You're saying uh, one or the other. Let me ask you about one of the things for which he has been an ardent protester, and that is the Patriot Act and President Obama signing the National Security Act. And maybe you can help us uh, be informed about what na- what are the the political machi- machinations of uh, national security? Because people are not people are feeling that the character that Barack Obama sold is not the character who would have signed and continued these national security and bolstered these national security um, uh, policies uh, uh, domestically. First of all, first of, first of all, first of all, none of them are reading the intelligence reports he gets. Okay, they don't have any idea what they're talking about. That's the first thing. The, the problem with the left, and I'm on the left, you know, and I've been on the left longer than any of these people who are out here running their mouth. There are none of them who've been on the left as long as me, and none of them have a record of achievement on the left that could match mine. All right? So the, 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 the problem is is that they act as if the global jihad is not real, that because Bush started a war in a country that was not involved in it, then the whole thing is a hoax. It is not a hoax. You understand? And all these fools who walk around talking about the Bush administration, you know, uh, uh, blew up the World Trade Center. That's as crazy. That's as crazy as anything that the right has to say about Barack Obama. That that is a bunch of crazy, paranoid nonsense that keeps us from looking at what the real questions are. Well, one of the Barack things. O- no, let me finish. Let me finish about this question because I have wrote a piece on this called Barack Obama and the Global Jihad, and I, in which I address this question you're talking about directly. You know what I'm saying? And I'm going to read to you what I wrote about it, all right? Because I addressed these, all of these. I've written about all of these questions, all right? And this one here, I took on directly. All right, listen to this. This is called Barack Obama and the Global Jihad. Before uh, you do that, I've got to yeah. take a break. Okay, um, right. I've run all my breaks. But this whole idea. I will answer your question. I want to answer your questions about all of these national okay. security questions, all right? You know, I want to answer them, all right? Okay. Okay. You're, you're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight is Playfell Benjamin. He is the author of an upcoming book, Witnessing the Motion of History. We are talking about his essays on, in the political, cultural, and social front. Uh, also, we're getting a good clarity about how we think about uh, the Obama administration policies. I'm Janice Graham, and thank you so very much for being with us, and we'll be right back with you. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to shoot you right down. Right off of your feet. Boom, 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 boom. You're talking to me, I like it like that. This is our common ground with Janet Frank, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Right off of my feet. 
Thank you for being with us. At our common ground where comrades meet, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Transforming truth to power one broadcast at a time. Look around you. One in four kids in the U.S. faces hunger. It's not always easy to see the signs, but in this land of plenty, there are kids that don't know where they will get their next meal. Join Share Our Strength in Food Network and take the pledge to end childhood hunger here in America by 2015. Learn how at NoKidHungry.org. Their next meal could come from you. Drilling down, just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. Common Ground, broadcasting bold, brave, and black. You'd better know. around the world, 
whether the, wherever the intelligence reports leads, including the United States. It also authorizes American forces to capture terror suspects and empowers the government to detain them indefinitely without stating charges and bringing them to a speedy trial. The core of the complaint against the president was succinctly stated by Lloyd Laura W. Murphy, the director of the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, Washington's leg legislative office. Quote, if President Obama signs this bill, it will damage both his legacy and America's reputation for upholding the rule of law. The last time Congress passed indefinite detention legislation was during the McCarthy era, and President Truman had the courage to veto that bill, end of quote. However, there are obvious problems with this argument. Whether the first assertion is true, that signing the legislation will ruin the president's legacy and the reputation of the United States, is a matter of speculation about the future. But referencing the McCarthy era is a false historical analogy because the American homeland had suffered no military attack and was in no imminent danger of one. If one insists upon engaging in the risky business of constructing historical analogies, a practice most professional historians avoid, a comparison of President Obama's actions with those of Abraham Lincoln's during the Civil War would be on much firmer ground. What is at question here is the scope of the theater of war and the denial of habeas corpus, the constitutional provision that requires the government to charge a detainee within 72 hours or release them. Abraham Lincoln, who is now almost universally regarded as our greatest president, and those who don't are the enemies of black people, he was the savior of the Union. Not only did Lincoln ignore a writ of habeas corpus issued by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roger V. Taney, the author of the notoriously racist Dred Scott decision, but Lincoln suspended the right of habeas corpus altogether on September 24, 1862. His executive order offered this explanation. Quote, During the existing insurrection, and as a necessary measure for suppressing the same, all rebels and insurgents, their aiders and abettors within the United States, and all persons discouraging volunteer enlistments, resisting militia drafts, or guilty of any disloyal practice, affording aid and comfort to rebels against the authority of the United States, shall be subject to martial law and liable to trial and punishment by courts, martial or military commission. The writ of habeas corpus is suspended in respect to all persons arrested, end of quote. When Lincoln was accused of subverting the Constitution by his critics, he said, quote, the Constitution is not a suicide pact, end of quote. The bill that President Obama is signing into law is far more respectful of the rights of American citizens than was Lincoln's writ. Yet he has a more elusive and potentially destructive enemy whose theater of war is worldwide, and they have rejected the recognized rules of war. Still, the president has insisted on retaining the role of our federal courts in trying terror suspects, while Republicans argue for military tribunals exclusively. Uh, the, the, the paramount issue here is the imperatives of national security versus individual rights, and the arguments of both sides have merit. Like the critics of this bill, 
I am also disturbed by the absence of any court supervision in determining who is a terrorist and the possibility of abuse by future presidents. But the American electorate has the power to make their representatives repeal this law anytime they wish. That power, the power of the ballot, will remain intact. President Obama is tasked with keeping American citizens safe from another attack that could be more devastating than 9-11, a nuclear weapon or a dirty bomb set off in a major American city. As Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, it is his responsibility to ensure that this will not happen, and there are people who are working on it 24-7. It is an awesome task, one that must be mistake-free, and thus far the President has performed marvelously. Furthermore, he is on firm constitutional ground in signing this bill. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2 of the Constitution clearly states, quote, The privileges of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it, end of quote. Mm -hmm. I regard this passage as proof that President Lincoln was right, and President Obama, a brilliant constitutional scholar, by the way, concurs. It shows that the architects of American democracy foresaw the possibility of a national security emergency that might require extraordinary measures which abridge the normal rights Americans enjoy. That's why the U.S. Constitution, despite the limitations of its 18th century document dealing with 21st century problems, was not intended to be a suicide pact. Now I go on and talk about other things, but that's the core of my argument. Uh, the core of my argument is is that if it was unconstitutional, the Republicans would impeach him. Mm-hmm. Now, they uh, died for me, and they can't and they can't impeach him because it's not unconstitutional. And what he did is completely reasonable in view of the situation that we face. And as I point out further in this piece, what do you think would happen if some of these jihadists managed to actually set off a nuclear weapon or a dirty bomb in an American city? You think? You think these laws are severe? You think these laws are severe? They would declare martial law, period, all over this country. You know, we'd have a police state overnight. You understand what I'm saying? That's far more severe than anything you see here. So this is this is just, you know, another, you know, like the hysterics, you know, on the left, you know, who, uh, you know, who, you know, make a big deal of of all of this and blow it, you know, all out of proportion. This the what the, the situation that Barack Obama is involved with. He's involved with people uh, who um he's involved with people who first of all are willing to die. Not only are they willing to die to achieve the objective, they're willing to kill as many people as necessary. They believe that they're on a divine mission. They believe that we are all infidels and devils anyway, so we don't really matter. It doesn't matter how many of us they kill. And and the President of the United States has the responsibility of preventing that from happening. That's his first responsibility, maintain the security of the homeland. You know, and so the people who argue this don't have any idea, they don't know anything about the military problems involved here. You know, I, I, I was I was one time I was in the, the United States Strategic Air Command where we kept nuclear weapons. This is when the this is when I was in there when General Curtis LeMay was the commander, and this was the the heart of the American nuclear strike force before it became all missiles. And I know uh, the, the 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 kind of uh, I was in security, and I know the kind of of of, of nightmare it is. You know. 
to keep track of all these nuclear weapons and be sure that nobody get a hold of none of them. When the Russian when the Russian government fell, they ended up missing some suitcase nukes because both the United States and the Russians developed these suitcase nukes. That is nuclear weapons the size of you could the size of a suitcase. That's where a nuclear attack will come from. Not from some nation attacking us by missiles or bombers. You couldn't attack us with a bomber. But, well, let but, me let me ask yeah. you: Why didn't this administration then reduce the kind of uh, in, install some limitations and some protective rights like what? for American citizens inside the borders of the United States? Do you know anybody uh, who has got locked up for terrorist charges that you think is innocent? No. I don't either. I don't either. You know, and I know, and I know a lot of subversive people. But there are, there have been incidents where the Patriot Act has been utilized to uh, detain. Individuals. I mean, you know, one of the things, Playfield, is what I'm trying to get to. Let me just make myself clear about this, all right? I'm concerned that don't nobody set off a nuclear weapon in New York City, all right? Period. You know? And I really don't care what we have to do to stop that from happening. Mm-hmm. All right? And as far as I'm concerned, none of these measures are excessive, given the nature of the, of the threat that we're up against. Well, I'm, I'm, always con- right. I'm always yeah. concerned about what I call the ballers. Those are the people who are in senior management in some of these agencies within the uh, and, and, and branches of the Pentagon, the military, uh, all of them, who don't have the kind of vision, uh, who are, I mean, we have yahoos in suits who make major decisions in our government. We have yahoos in our police departments. We have yahoos in the FBI and the federal uh, police. I worry. Let me about ask you a question. Do you think that's a, you think do you think that poses a greater danger than uh, one of these jihadists setting off a nuclear weapon in an American city? You think that's a greater danger? After nine eleven, no, I don't. All right. So listen, it's not a perfect world. Okay, people need to grow up. You know. It's like the idiots who talked about they should have read Osama bin Laden his rights before they shot his ass. You understand what I'm saying? You know, I have friends who died in the World Trade Center. You know, I don't care about reading him his rights. You know, I thought they should have shot him on sight. Okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, and about these drones. Uh, Cornell and running around here complaining about the drones. Cornell has never spent a moment in the military. Okay? If you don't use drones, then you're going to have to send troops in. You're going to have to put, send more of young Americans in to be maimed or killed. It's easy for people. If, they, if they're so concerned about the drones, you know, and they want to see a lot of these people, why don't they join the military? Just like these people who say they have to well, use uh, assault a, weapons. That, Let them join. You know what I'm saying? I, no. Listen, that's not a, that's not we a are word at war. We are at war. They're at war. There's only two ways you can do this. Then you either send live human beings in or you send drones in. We are at war. Yes, we're at war. Absolutely. We are at war with the global Islamic Jihad, okay? And they are dead serious. They think uh, that we are the great Satan. They think that they are the party of God. 
and they would think nothing of setting off a nuclear weapon in New York or any other American city if they could do it. And they're perfectly willing to blow themselves up with it, you understand, because they're going to, you know, paradise with their virgins, you know. Mm-hmm. So they have to be, uh, if, if, if the Bush administration had been paying attention like Barack and them were paying attention, 9-11 would never have happened. You're saying the reason that some people think that the Bush administration themselves organized the attack on the World Trade Center, which is absolutely absurd, and I don't even talk to people who even tell me stuff like this, because first of all, what could you offer an American pilot to get them to run a plane into the World Trade Center? You know, what could you offer them? Americans don't do that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, 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 and what would be the point? Well, the point is when you ask these people, well, what's the point? The point, they say, is is that, well, they did it so they could institute um, uh, uh, a martial law. They could institute a police state. Okay, so what is the police state? The police state is the, is the Patriot Act. You know, that's the best the police state. Okay, well, if you're living in a police state, how come you're sitting here on WBI telling us about how the Bush administration plotted to bring down the World Trade Center? Now, they cold-blooded enough to do that. But they're going to let these two little jerks who made this so-called documentary called Loose Chains, they're going to let them run around and expose it, right? It's absurd. You know what I'm saying? It's absolutely ridiculous. That's not how the world works. That's absurd. You know, if they were cold-blooded enough to bring down the World Trade Center, they would certainly kill anybody who had any knowledge of how they did it. You're sitting, people talking about they're in a police state, and they're sitting on, talking on the radio, accusing the government of a crime like that. You know what? They have no idea what a police state is. So You think you could, listen, you think you could do that in China? You think you could do that in Cuba? Please. You know, these people are idiots. Yeah. Well, you've you got think a you lot could of do that in Iran? To, They're all idiots. To, to talk to you, but one of the other yeah. questions, two questions I have uh, that uh, I want you to address, and one is what you think is the point of the least um, prudent decision having been made by this presidency over the first and, and into the second administration uh, term. And the other is what people need to do in order to to better understand how they can remove the impediments that this president uh, faces? Listen, as I said in this piece, just this last piece I wrote, if Cornell West and want to do something that's really useful, something constructive, then they should be out organizing a million worker march on Washington to demand uh, that the Congress pass these jobs bills that the president have. Let me just explain something to you. This is a uh, capitalist economy, which means that uh, the majority of the means of production are privately owned. Now, the socialists, you know, and communists uh, feel like it should be otherwise. But in America, the only way you change anything in America is that the majority of people want it to change, and they vote people in office who are going to bring about these changes. There's no evidence that there's any sizable number of Americans who's in, who are interested in establishing a socialist state in the United States at this time. That being the case, what then is the alternative, what what alternatives does a president, this president or any president, what 
can they do about mass unemployment? There's only one thing that a president of the United States can do about mass unemployment in a privately owned economy, and that is to make the government the employee of last resort and tax the ones with the money to pay for it and rebuild, put them to work rebuilding this country, for instance. You know, all this crumbling infrastructure, there's enough work to put all the unemployed, able-bodied to work. But the Republicans will not allow any of the jobs bills through the House. The House of Representatives is where all revenue bills begin. So it is the American electorate that is at fault, not President Obama. People don't read anything. People should read the New New Deal. These idiots who say, you know, oh, what has he done for me, blah, blah, blah. They should, they should read, read the New New Deal. You know what I'm saying? Read, read this book by this great Time, Time uh, magazine reporter, one of the top of the food chain as far as journalism is concerned. This guy traced that money, that $800 billion, from the time it was appropriated. And this book tells you what he did with it, how it was spent. The Republicans keep saying, oh, it was a waste of money. It was not a waste of money. It was not a waste of money. It was the conclusion of 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 of, of nonpartisan study groups is that this is the most corruption-free big money program in the history of the United States government. That's the first thing. The second thing is is to look at how he invested it. He invested it in creating a future and put toward creating a new economy. It's a fascinating story, you know. It's, it's, it, and, and this guy points out that though it's not as obvious as the things FDR did, this was every bit a new deal. And he points out how Barack Obama's policies kept millions of families from lapsing into poverty. You know, he talks about he's, this guy has uh, uh, a secret research program going on to, to get rid of, get us off of, of, of petroleum altogether. As one project, he appointed a guy who's a, 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 a Nobel laureate in physics who specializes in alternative energy, the head of the energy department. This guy, when you ask me about the least prudent decision, uh, I don't know what you mean by that. There are decisions that, 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 that I have made that, uh, that he's made that I disagree with, but I didn't think he had any choice, like, for instance, around I- issues of Israel. Like, for instance, when the, when the, when the Palestinians wanted to you know, uh, 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 um, propose statehood, uh, before the before the General Assembly, and he had to veto it. But he told Mahmoud not to do it. You understand? Now, when you, don't do this now, okay? Now, if you if he had done it, if he had supported him, he would not have gotten reelected. Yeah. So if you ask me whether I think I'm prepared to have a Mitt Romney as president in order to save Mah- Mahmoud Abbas, you know, to save uh, Abu Abbas's face with his people? Hell no, I'm not. Yep. And he should have waited like Barack Obama told him. Because APEC, the American-Israeli Public uh, 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 Action, Political Action Committee, is real. And their power is real. Mm-hmm. And this is not just Jews. This is, this is millions of Christian Zionists. This is millions of these evangelicals who believe, you know, that, that, that the state of Israel represents, you know, fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Mm-hmm. And it is clear it, that it, it, our it, it, left, that we have no political action committee in our community. So what you going to do? Well, it's not true that we don't have political. We have the NAACP. What do you think the NAACP? What do you think the Urban League is? They're, they're, they, they are, they're lobbying organizations, but they're not as powerful as APEC. Mm-hmm. Because and they're not APEC as powerful has because. A- 
we're not as powerful because we don't have as much money as them. Uh-huh. You know, it's not as many people. I mean, I told you, all these millions of Christian Zionists, you know, they, they, these, these evangelicals, you know, they support, they are, they have the most far-right position on Israel. And interestingly enough, and I've written about all of this, interestingly enough, they don't care about Jews. Most of them are anti-Semitic. These Christian Zionists who are such ardent supporters of Israel. And the Jewish leadership know it. I've written about this. They know it. But here's the deal. They have struck a Faustian bargain. The Christian Zionists are interested in Israel not for Jew- because of Jews. They're interested in Israel because of their, what they call end-time theology. They believe we're at the end of, the end of days. And, 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 and their understanding of the Bible is, is that Jesus Christ can't return until the Jews are you know, firmly entrenched in Israel. But yeah. they believe if the Jews don't accept Christianity before the rapture, they go all burn in hell, which is, which is anti-Jewish by nature. But, but the Jews' position is, the Jewish leadership, the organized Jewish leadership position is, like Abraham Foxman and them, hey, if the deal you want to make is, is that you will support us on anything we want to do for Israel, and all we got to do is become Christians before the rapture, we'll take that deal every day in the yeah. week and twice yeah. on the Sabbath. You understand? That's what that is. Yeah. Right? But the, but the point is, no politician can prevail against it. And why would people want Barack Obama to commit suicide, political suicide, when no none of the white presidents, you know, uh, have been willing to do it, uh, except George Bush Senior, who had all these, you know, Texas arm and stuff around him and baking them for a while. They, they 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 stood up to him for a little while. But but the fact of the matter is, is that they at least they they these people have all kinds of means. Uh, to organize against uh, any yeah. uh, politician who comes out, you know, uh, and, uh, against, you know, their agenda. And so Barack Obama couldn't do it and survive politically, and I prefer that he survive politically. Yeah. You're now, gonna... that, now, now that he has a second term, I think he will get tough with them. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and our guest tonight is Playfell Benjamin, the political, cultural, and social essayist. Uh, if you want to check out his work, you can do for many years commentaries on the times dot wordpress dot com Thank you so much for being with us we 're going to go to our phones. Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two we don 't have a lot of time uh so we 're going to ask you to make your points precise or your questions precise and to um limit the scope of your call. And I'm going to start with who has been holding for long. 982, thank you for holding. You're on with Playfell Benjamin. 972. Oh, sorry, Janice. I thought you said 982. Greetings to you. Greetings to you, Sarah. Good to hear you. Greetings to to, um, Playtel. Am I being heard? Yes. yes, I hear you. We hear you very well. Okay, Janice, I guess you did this on purpose because you know I was going to get long-winded, but I'm <laughs> going to be very brief. I have to say that I disagree with about 95% of everything that Playtel has to say. And I'm going to go back to, to the very beginning where he started to blame Cornel West. I'm not a fan of the Dom, Dr. West or Tavis. I'm not a fan of this administration. I'm not a fan of any political candidates or parties. To say that Cornel West was responsible for Al Gore losing the election he as well as He was partially responsible, not totally responsible, partially responsible. Partially um, okay. responsible. And, and he was. Could, could, I, could I finish up my sentence? What I you have know, to just, no, but just don't misstate what I said. 
You know, I said partially responsible, and he was partially responsible. It's a fact. Okay. I'm um for for what I have to say is this: if you, as Al Gore, to go back to Al Gore, if you cannot win your own home state, which would have carried him over the top, then you are our loser because Al Gore has no personality, same as John Kerry. They were like a walking corpse. They had no charisma. So if he lost his own state in the general election, then you can um, you you can um, blame Cornell or whoever for backing Ralph Nader and him not carrying over the state of Florida. Well, even when to the say state of listen to say listen 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 to say that he lost his own state sounds like a profound statement, but it's really rather silly because Arkansas is a red state. And it is a state. Listen, hold on a minute. From from our, he, he lost he, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, lost well, Tennessee. well, from where he, whichever one, it's one of them southern ex-Confederate states that's a red state. And it doesn't matter. Listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Listen, can I, can I finish? It doesn't matter that he was born there. They don't even think of him as being from Tennessee because he really grew up in Washington. His father was, was, a, was a senator. He grew up living in a hotel in Washington. So, they carry Tennessee as well as Arkansas. I don't so care whether they did or not. I'm telling you. I'm te- but I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm telling you to say that he didn't carry his state is ridiculous. It's a Republican well, red it's state. All right, it's, it's ridiculous. All right. Argument. Because just like Barack Obama carried Hawaii and as well as his um, adopted state of Illinois, Al Gore but these are blue. But these are but these are already blue states. What are you talking about? I mean, you, you talk, you, you talk, what you're talking about has no what you're talking about has no relationship to political reality. It has no relationship to political reality. You have no. It has no relationship to. First of all, you've already said that you don't support any political party or any politician. So why are you even talking about? It? Why are you talking? Because this is a because political I conversation. I don't even. I don't even. I have nothing. I have nothing. I have nothing to say to anybody. I have nothing to say to anybody who does not support any political party. I have nothing to say to you. You're well, an but I'm not speaking to you. I'm I have nothing to say to you. You can, you can mute your mic if you don't want to hear what I have to say. I'm because just saying I have nothing to say. You say whatever you want, but it's, it's nonsense. It's ridiculous. Well, you know, even, even let's not split hairs about Al Gore. Al Gore really lost the election in Florida. Exactly. Uh, and, yes, he lost it in Florida. And yes, him. he lost and it in Florida. Yes. Because so, even when they had the hanging chair and dimples, when Al Gore, when the Supreme Court made the decision, when he stood up in the Senate, he could have made a decision right then and there to have that um to have that recount done, and he chose not to do it. Listen, listen. Why are we even talking to this woman? She's already told us she's not interested in politics. Because Let's talk to a, somebody who's interested a, in politics. You know what I mean? All right. Well, yeah, but she's yeah, but she's not interested in politics. So why are we but, talking? But here's, to her? here's, here's the point. Here's the point. Why are you trying to put relevant. words in my mouth, I can speak for myself. If you don't support any political candidate, you're not interested in politics. If you don't support, well, you support don't, any political you, party you, and no political candidate. You are an anarchist. You're an anarchist. And I said, I said I could care less about the political parties or the candidates. I didn't say I wasn't interested. I'm very astute. I knew well, what does it mean to what, Do you understand that in the United States, politics consists of support of one party or the other? You're not going to get anything done in this country except through these two parties, period. All right? So if you are not supporting a Democrat or a Republican, you are not really in the political game. And that's the reason why all these so-called intellectuals on the left are standing on the sidelines, running their mouth, and the American left you can't elect. Right they, none, of the, none of these people have ever run a successful campaign to elect 
somebody for village well, dog catcher. Okay, they have well, absolutely no. They have absolutely no influence on the political system. Okay, they I'm have no influence in the system. I, no I, influence. I, I, no? I, you know, I think that one of the things that still is, you know, the elephant that sits in the room is that why in this country we have been unsuccessful <laughs> in pulling together a third party that serves our interests, that can influence the machine of the other two parties. It's impossible. If Theodore Roosevelt Roosevelt couldn't do it with the Bull Moose Party in the early 1900s, he was a national hero. In fact, he was a symbol of the Anglo-Saxonist revival that was taking place at the time. And he had a lot of big money behind him. He couldn't pull it off. Uh, this other guy who tried it, uh, another billionaire who tried it a few years, what was his name, uh, that tried it this third party? Uh, the little, the, the little packer like, from uh, Texas. Yeah, yeah, it was in the yeah, yeah, They had all that money. Uh, uh-huh. He couldn't do it. Uh, Bloomberg, oh, wow. right now, they, they're trying. Nobody, these parties are too broadly based. They're too deeply entrenched. Uh, I believe all third-party efforts are pipe dream, and the history of this country demonstrates that that is true. Sarah, I know you didn't get to all of your uh, all of your questions. Oh, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's okay. You go ahead and get the other callers in because I know you are pressed for time. So, yeah, uh, please, I'm, please, let's talk to somebody who's interested all. in politics. Let him do what he got to do. You get the yeah. other callers, and we'll talk some other time. Okay, and I'll put you on mute, Janice. Let, let me just say this, uh, Janice. Let me just say this. Mm-hmm. Listen. This is a political conversation, all right? Here's what I'm interested in, okay? If somebody has a criticism of Barack Obama, here's what I want them to do. I want to tell me specifically what the policy criticism is, and I want them to tell me what they would propose instead of the policy, his policy. And then I want them to give us some reasonable idea as to a strategy as to how they're going to get their okay, ideas through both houses. Listen, through both houses of Congress, right? Do that. Some people call me up and tell me they're not interested and they don't support any party or no politician. Why are you talking to me? I'm not interested in talking to anybody who's not interested in the political process. He stopped running his mouth. Uh, Go, Sarah, go. You rock, girl. No, third party is a viable. This is not the whole reason I called in. But you're asking for specific policy changes? Yes. Remove the NDAA. Remove every tyrannical that this man has put into office. Oh, well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Yeah, See, because that's, no, listen, because listen. you are not going to talk over me. You no, you have to, you have to, talk, you, I have to ask, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to ask you a question. You can't talk over me. You can't talk over me. I'm not going to allow you to talk over me. I can't talk over you. You're not, I'm not, no, you won't. I'm not going to allow it. You will, uh, you will, you will, you're going to answer this question. You are going to answer this question or I'm not going to allow you to talk over me, all right? If you can't answer my question, so just, just calm down and let me ask you a question and you can talk some more, okay? If you want to get rid, if you listen, no, 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 listen, you you must answer my question or this will not go on, all right? Period. Okay. Well, now, no, the question I, I, I'm asking you is the question. The question Sarah. I'm asking you is if you get rid of the the, 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 the if you get rid of uh, the uh, the laws that you were talking about, how are you going to protect the country against the jihadists who want to put well, nuclear weapons let, in American city? How are you going to okay. do it? Okay. Let's go back to the law. What policy approach. would you would you recommend for doing that? Well, if you'll 
be quiet for a second. I'll be more than happy to tell just you. Just go ahead and talk. Hey, Would you just, just tell me what you okay. don't need to give me no lot of slip talk. Just answer the question. Stop. Just stop, okay, and listen with your ears. As I tell my children, listen with your ears and not with your mouth. Okay. okay. Answer the question. You, you go. I'm trying to. Your impatience is very Answer the question. And I'm getting to it, buddy. Um, you go back and you look at the principles of Ron Paul. Rather Ron Paul, than being an please, let's move on. Rather Ron Paul, listen, Ron I'm Paul, sorry. Ron Paul I'm, is a maniac. I'm Ron Paul so is a maniac. Sorry. Please, so a sorry. racist maniac. Please. Me my chance to talk? No, I don't want to hear anybody. Well, not, nothing from Ron Paul. No, you asked me how I was going not. to fix it. I, no, I don't. Ron I Paul don't have a clue. Open your mouth. Ron you Paul does not have a clue, and I don't have anything to say to Ron Paul's Are support. Are you proposing right? that Ron Paul has an answer for this? Yes. Ron Paul uh, is a maniac. Okay. We know what Ron Paul has proposed. He's a racist, you know. He's a racist. Here's a guy who led a campaign against the Dr. King holiday, put out a very racist paper. I wrote about it at length, and she's telling me about Ron Paul. Ron Paul is a fool, an absolute fool, all right? And so I don't want to hear anything from any Ron Paul followers, period. Okay, well, let, let, me, let me ask you, because I come from the great state of Tennessee. I don't All care right? where you come from. Ron Paul's a fool. But and if you, are Ron, if you are a follower of Ron Listen, Paul, you are clueless. Listen with your ears and not with your mouth, okay? Okay. So you yes. need a cookie just and a lollipop. I've had enough of this. Listen, let's move on to somebody else, all right? Because I, uh, no, I have nothing no, to say to this woman, to all right? I have nothing to say to her. She's a Ron Paul follower. She has no idea what's going on. I have no nothing uh, further to say to her. You know, this racist, this racist, this racist clown, Ron Paul. You for an answer. I don't want any answer you, because you don't have any answer. You don't have any answer. Do you know the Battle of Athens, Tennessee? Please, the Battle of Athens. Please, please, listen, listen, Dennis, let's move on, please. We're not going to get anywhere with this. Okay, we're not going to get anywhere with it. Let me, just explain. Let, me just, let me just explain something to you. I'm not interested in arguing with any Ron Paul followers. If you are a Ron Paul follower, this is, this is a guy, this is a guy, this is a guy who's a maniac. This guy's a maniac. Yeah, you look at, you look at, you look at, you look at, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm, get her off the line. I'm not talking to her. I don't want to talk to any Ron Paul uh, you followers. You know, I don't want to talk to any Ron Paul followers, period. You know what I'm saying? If you, here's a guy who led, the movement against Dr. King's birthday published the most racist rag all over. This is a guy who wants to get rid of the, Depart the, the, the Department of Vi the Environmental Protection he wants to get rid of. You know, he's a fool. Please, you know, Ron Paul, you know, please. That's like Snoop Dogg talking about he's for Ron Paul because Ron Paul want to get rid of the anti-marijuana laws. Please, you know, I don't want to talk to any Ron Paul uh, 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 people because these people are all nuts. Well, it looks like we dropped 410. Please feel free to to call back in. Uh, Blog Talk Radio has had uh, some changes over the last couple of days and some of the technical stuff. But, Playtel, let me ask you a question uh, specifically around where you think black leadership should be organizing and to, and, and to what issues, for instance, there are concerns about violence in the street, specifically looking at what has happened over the last year in Chicago. Uh, there, is, there are issues in the black community regarding hunger. There are issues in the black community regarding disparities in health care. 
there are so many issues, and it seems as though we don't have some coalition and collaborative organizing going in our in, on in our own communities. Let me explain and, something to you. Uh, there's nothing that black people can do by themselves to change any of these things. All right, that's the first thing. Nothing that black people can do mm-hmm. alone to change any of these things. Because these things can only be changed as a matter of government policy. What do you think that the, 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 the health care bill is? The health care is going to give health care to a lot of people that don't have it now. That's what the president is trying to do. He would love to have had a single-payer program. And people get mad on the left because he didn't fight for a single-payer program when he barely managed to get this magnificent program he got through. He has opposition in the Congress. Okay, and these people are not paying attention. You understand? They expect him to do things that is beyond his power. You know, so you want to know what the black community can do. What they need to do is be organizing get with other groups, with organized labor and other people, and organize, do what Al Sharpton and them are doing, organize, you understand, to try and get these Republicans, as many of them out of the House of Congress in 2016 as possible. But see, that requires, that's not dramatic. That's mm-hmm. just nitty-gritty work, nitty-gritty organizing. There's no place to grandstand the way Cornell West and them love to go around grandstanding and making speeches. This requires real serious organization, the kind of organization that the labor movement does all the time. When you look at how Barack Obama won this election, this was a marvel you know, of organization, and it is a coalition. There's all kinds of people catching hell in this country today. Mm-hmm. It's not just black people. You know, you go down and look, look all through Appalachia, look at South Boston, look at, I mean, there's all kinds of people who are catching hell, yeah. you know? And anybody who thinks that Barack Obama should be walking around talking smack about being black, you understand, in a country where we are a small minority, they are fools. You understand? The, the, the Republicans well, would like quite. nothing better than to make this a racial issue. They want to get him involved in a racial argument because they know we will lose. You don't have to be a rocket science to figure, scientist to figure this out. All you've got to do is just understand basic arithmetic. Yeah. If it becomes a racial issue, we lose. You know, Barack Obama, part of his political genius is the way he has avoided allowing them to drag him into these racial kerfuffles. It's, 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 it's a few genius, you know. But when you look at all of the things that he's accomplishing, there's a lot of things, you know. Uh, 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 read, read, you got to read, you understand? There's no getting around it, you understand what I'm saying? But when people talk about what has he done for us, well, let's take the first act that he signed in the law, the Lily Ledbetter Act, which, which, which makes it illegal to pay women less than men. In a community where over 70% of households are headed by women, who's going to benefit from that more than us? His decision to, to get the banks out of the, the college loan business, who's going to benefit from that more than us, reducing the, 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 the payments on college loans? The $100 million he gave to black schools, colleges, out of the, the stimulus package. You know, uh, there's, 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 there's all of these all of these uh, measures, every measure that Barack Obama has taken, black people will benefit from it as much as everybody else. And so then, your like counsel, I say, and then, and then, and then, like I say, like I say, I'm not judging. Barack Obama is not the leader of the NAACP, all right? And I'm not looking for him to solve all the problems of the black community. How, for instance, is he going to solve the problem of? black folk murdering each other in Chicago. How in the hell is the president of the United States going to keep you from shooting your neighbor? Give me a break. You understand what I'm saying? What are the rest of us supposed to do? That's a result of the abdication of parenting 
by large segments of our community, the people who like what Bill Cosby said, they don't raise their children. I mean, what kind of what what kind of what kind of parent That's must you be if your kid can go out and kill somebody uh, casually? You know, a teenager go out and just kill somebody. You know, and it don't, what kind of parent have you have you been? You know, I've raised children right here in Harlem. I mean, I have. A, I mean, they would be horrified. You know, it's something like that. Yeah. This is this let's, is this is a failure of parenting. Yeah. Four oh five. You're on the air with Playfell Benjamin. Well, well, well. Dennis, the how are you? <laughs> and uh, hello, Mr. Playfell Benjamin, and how are how you, you doing? Sir? I uh, just wanted to put a few qualifiers in. Now, I do hold a Juris Doctor degree. I've been a police officer. I, I, I have the uh, Korean Service Defense Medal. Uh, so I was uh, stationed in Sandia Base in Albuquerque and dealt with, uh, had a top secret clearance. Uh, so did I. Yeah. yeah, and was oh yeah, and was yeah. on the uh, a team to uh, for uh, to clean up after nuclear accident or war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and I've been an educator, been a lot of things, been a social worker. But uh, I agree with you on a number of issues. Uh, you know, I uh, support the president and have supported him uh, in light of the choice that we face with Romney and this fool Ryan, there's no way that anyone who is sane and have looked at the issues, especially involving the, our, our people, would have uh, sided with uh, Romney and voted against uh, the president, in my Opinion and you, you're right, but 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 you're right. But let me just say one thing. Some of these people talk as if as if as if Barack Obama is running against uh, whoever they think would be a better person. But that's not who he's running against. He's running against Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan, as you just pointed out. Yes, absolutely. And not only that, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that he's faced an obstructionist Congress on everything that he attempted to do. The worst thing. Uh, I mean, I mean, can you imagine getting into office and the night that you that you're you're, you're uh, you win and and you're uh, looking forward to the presidency? These idiots are holding meetings to uh, co- supposed Congress leaders, government leaders, holding meetings to uh, uh, devise a strategy to undermine your presidency. And black that's people what, act as if the, the, critics of, up the critics of Barack Obama act as if none of this ever happened. I mean, how could, I mean, it's one thing for people on the street not to be able to understand this, even though most of them do. But, it's, but, but I'm completely puzzled as to how somebody as highly educated as Cornel West or Dr. Boris Watkins, or these people can't see this. You know, I mean, I just, I just, I, I don't, it's, it's, it's an absolute mystery to me. I just don't get it. I don't understand it. These, here is what happened in the election when Barack Obama got elected the first time. Um, 58% of white Americans did not vote for him. Okay? It was yeah. white folks who did vote for him and all the rest of us. All right? Uh-huh. Now, uh-huh. The, the, the 58% who didn't vote for him were outraged that he won. Yeah, outraged, and Absolutely. you can see it. You can see it in the slogans of the Tea Party, like "Taking Our Country Back." Take your country back for whom? They act as if some foreign invaders came in and invaded the country and took over. Barack Obama was elected. He went through the electoral process and won. Absolutely. And they were so convinced that this was a fluke that they actually thought 
that they had the election in the bag. I mean, they were really shocked, shell-shocked, when Barack Obama kicked their ass again, and, and, and in such grand fashion, you know, because they couldn't believe, okay, he beat our war hero. Surely he will not beat, you know, I mean, Mitt Romney, you look at Mitt Romney and his wife, uh, Anne, they look like, you know, Ken and Bobby in the autumn of their years. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, he's the yeah, he's the American dream, you know what I'm saying? Tall, handsome, you know, rich businessman, and surely he's going to whip this nigga. And he did. Yeah. And that, now let me get they, two points yeah, in right, right Yeah, right, yeah. Because uh, I know yeah. Janice has got other people on the line. Yeah. One point that I have uh, disagree with him, uh, you know, and I understand his political limitations and the liabilities that he faced and uh, as being uh, the uh, presiding person in the uh, executive branch, uh, and what he's up against, but uh, the extension of the Patriot Act uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, chapped me a little bit, and even more so was the National Defense Authorization Act, which he signed on December 31st. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about Title uh, 10 and uh, Section D, which deals with the counterterrorism uh uh, which allows for the uh, indefinite detention of uh, persons uh, suspected of uh, involvement in government terrorism when there's no clear uh, definition of what government terrorism is and which also applies to American citizens. I just don't trust this government. Uh, Obama said he'd never use this against Americans. But uh, the history of this country, when I look back and see the suspension of habeas corpus with the Japanese, uh, incidentally, who got uh, paid reparations for their internment, uh, and the Tuskegee Institute, uh, the the different uh, uh, experiments that have been uh, condoned by the government, the local government here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I live in the state of Oklahoma, uh, Playtale, uh, uh, in reference to May 21st, 1921, uh, which burning down of the uh, Greenwood area, which is uh, more... Uh, less of Black Wall Street. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm just concerned about individual liberties. Let me ask you a question. I mean, I've spent a lot of time uh, studying uh, history mm -hmm. of Afro-Americans in this country. And um, do you really think that what happened uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, could happen again? You really believe that? Well, we don't have the, the structure again. We don't have the power uh, that we had at that particular time. If we did, uh, it, 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 you know, I, I'm not sure that it, it, it could happen again in, in just that, uh, you know, manner in which it did happen. But I, uh, you know, am all, all, always mindful of, uh, you know, the uh, the government in uh, passing these uh, bills clandestinely in the middle of the night, uh, which deprives Americans of basic due process rights uh, and ambiguous definitions. Now, I've been before the courts, and I don't, I don't trust the courts. I, I, I know how the courts are submitted. Well, I tell I'm you signing up. I'm signed up to practice before these courts, administrative bodies, uh, in uh, knowing that the full function of this, these courts are to support the system that we have in place, which is one of, when you look at it, domination. You're talking about a, a potential plutocracy. Plutocracy, plutocracy is here and has been here 
United plutocracy is not here. We have a participatory democracy. Well, and we you have, think that's just like when people talk about If we had a plutocracy, if we had a plutocracy, Barack Obama would not have won. They would have had no chance of winning. Let me rephrase it. We don't have a plutocracy. And we don't have a police state. And we don't have a police state either. No, but we have corporate government. United United Citizens sealed that deal. But anyway, thank you, Janice. Thank you, thank you, Playtel. I got to go. We said that. But that is a consequence of the fact that these idiots you know, saying, uh, allow the Republicans to get in. There's no question that the Citizens United decision is a disaster. I talked about that, and I said Absolutely. that Thanks, this could transform go, the country I'm being into a by the yeah, right. yeah, but you're right about that. You know what I mean? Thank, but that's the result of these Republicans, yeah. That, that's why it's so dangerous for people to be talking about. Let me just say one thing about uh, Ron Paul before we leave. Ron Paul is a libertarian. People should look at He's a right-wing libertarian. Yeah, they need to and, people, and, and, pe- and people should understand what that means. I mean, anybody who talks about getting rid of the Environmental Protection Agency, you got to be crazy. Get rid of the Environmental Protection Agency when we see I agree with you on Ron Paul. Yeah, yeah these people you. are crazy, yeah. So when somebody call up here talking about Ron Paul, the minute they say that, I would, like when, when I have talk show here, and we, I would just hang up on people. I'd say, look, I'm not, you know, uh, if you're dumb enough to think, that Ron Paul has a solution to this country's problem. There's nothing for us to talk about, you know? Hey, Playtel, it's been yeah. a, a wonderful pleasure to have you back at Our Common Ground. The reality of American politics is something that we have to understand. And you have given so much considerate thought and research and undermined it with history that uh, I just find your discussion and your perspective intriguing. Well, my dear, listen, when the book is finished, you know, we can do this again. But then I'm going to be doing these commentaries on your other thing, you know yeah. what I mean? So people will yeah. have a chance to get a, uh, take a shot at me. For those of you who are like, listening, you know I mean? yeah. Playfell Benjamin will be joining us on TruthWorks Network on Thursday evenings. We don't have a start date yet. He will be sharing with us a weekly commentary on the times and taking your calls, which is why uh, Sarah and Blue Tennessee and Don, um, thank you for your calls, and you will be able to further your exploration of the perspectives that uh, Playfell Benjamin brings. Thank you so very much, Playtel. Um well, these two hours went by very fast. You I know? know, it did. I'm amazed. You know, I'm amazed know. it was over. You know. Okay, well, Janet, you know, uh like I said, you know, uh call me and tell me, you know, when you want me to start doing these commentaries, all right? Okay. Okay. All right, my dear, thanks for having me. And when Thank the book you. Is, is ready to when I'm finished with the book, I'll come on and talk about it again. Absolutely. Right? Okay, Absolutely. Bye bye. And we want to thank all of you for being with us. And don't forget, our TruthWorks Network on Wednesday nights, Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson at 10 p.m. And on Fridays, The Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. I'm Janice Graham. It's been wonderful opening up the show with thoughtful exploration of where we are. Don't forget... God is in the rain, so go out there and get wet.
See you next week, 10 p.m. I'll be listening for you. All coming ground. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Good evening, this is Janice Graham, and this is Our Common Ground. Thank you so much for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We're here each Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be listening for you. Wishing you peace and power in the new week.